Well, good morning all. I really appreciate, Mike, your message earlier today. Glad that through all this modern day technology we can still meet together and look at what God's Word has for us today despite our struggle with Snowmageddon 2024. Now we are looking forward to some warmer weather and to the return of Norman Nancy as they will be returning this week from their excursion to foreign lands and especially we look forward to Brother Norm's return to the pulpit. But for this week, I'm here once again to continue our look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Today, our text will be coming from verses 6 through 9. But first, before we get there, I would like to do a quick review of what we looked at last time, and then look at the final bit of verse 5 before we go to verses 6 through 9. We ran just a little short on time last time, and I was not able to look at that part of the verse when we last met. So, to start with, in the way of review, we begin by looking at who Peter was addressing this letter to, and we can discern that who he was writing to was mostly Jewish Christians, believers located throughout the region, now known as Turkey. I say mostly Jewish believers because it is believed that by this time, there were some now Gentile believers scattered about also. He speaks to the trials they were suffering via persecution, and the letter is meant to encourage them in their struggles. He writes to them, offering praises to God for their inclusion in the elect. And by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the resulting obedience to Jesus Christ, and their sprinkled by the blood. Life wasn't the best of times, so to speak, Yet Peter records this about them. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Even if times were not ideal, Peter's message of abundant grace and peace multiplied brought comfort and rejoicing to those he was ministering to. And then as we continue looking at the first Five verses of Peter chapter 1. With all that established, we began to look at the many different blessings that spring forth from God's grace and abundant peace, beginning with a look at how God's grace and blessings are to all the church, Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or freed. By Christ, the barrier between the Jew and Gentile has been done away with, and we now are all one in Him. We looked at the many spiritual blessings that God the Father has blessed us with in Christ, those who have been accepted in the Beloved. We looked at the sanctifying work of the Spirit and how He dwells in us, God giving us life in our immortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in us. We looked at how that Spirit also gives us the blessing of being obedient to Christ. We, being led by the Spirit, now have peace with God. We are no longer at enmity against Him, and by His grace we are predestined to do good works and that were prepared beforehand. We looked at how through the Spirit they were of those who have received the sprinkling of the blood. We contrasted that sprinkling of the blood with those blood sacrifices of bulls, goats, and lambs that were offered in the Old Covenant times. Sacrifices which God voiced his utter contempt for. But in Christ, 
His blood sacrifice was found more than just acceptable, but pleasing in God's eyes. Now, instead of the required yearly sacrifices by the high priests of the time, Christ our high priest has made one sacrifice for all, making our redemption complete and for all time. The key verse is what we read there in Hebrews 12:24 last time. You have to come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And as was pointed out in Isaiah 1, all those former sacrifices of blood that were declared by God as contemptible in his eyes. We examined how Paul, the self-proclaimed greatest sinner of all, saw abundant mercy in how God delivered him. He, the blasphemer, the persecutor, a violent man, the greatest sinner of all in his eyes. The mercy that God showed him was an example, he believed, to all who count themselves among the worst of sinners, that Christ Jesus has immense patience for all who believe in him and are ordained to eternal life. We continued by looking at how by that same abundant mercy God hath given us a new birth. The old has gone, the new has come. We are made a new creation in Christ, having received a new body, incorruptible, indestructible, and forever free from the consequences of death, and as a result of the new birth, we now possess a living hope, which gives us the assurance that when the fulfillment of time comes, we will reside with him forever and ever, that ultimate salvation of our souls exists in our living hope. And where does that living hope come from? It was found in the very next blessing that we observed. We serve a risen Savior. Yes, Christ's resurrection gives us that hope. Despite the false teachers of the day proclaiming there was no resurrection, Paul defends the gospel by proclaiming that God did raise his Son from the dead and we spiritually arose in him. Christ was alive, so we too are alive. We went on to speak of the inheritance we have that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It cannot be given away or stolen. We talked about the spirit of adoption to sonship and how we, by that spirit, cry out, Abba, Father, as we are children of God. Because of that relationship, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We looked at how our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, a life that, or a book that is kept in heaven. Like Jesus said, rejoice because your names are written down in heaven. Yes, when the roll is called up yonder, we will all be there. And then the last blessing that time allowed us to look at was this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. But the part that we're looking at now is who through faith are shielded by God's power. This speaks to our absolute, complete security. We are kept by God's power. As Paul declares in Romans 8, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate, separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
that brings us to where we left off last week, the end of verse 5, where Peter says, who through faith are shielded by God's power, and then he says, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the day that brings us to the culmination of God's divine plan of our salvation. This is the day of our ultimate salvation, the salvation of our souls. Whether we are in our grave or among the final survivors of this totally defiled, corrupt, sinful, and unfit earth, things are going to change, and I believe in an instant. In one moment we are yet of this earth, and in our sin-corrupted bodies, then, in the blink of an eye, we are being lifted up into the clouds where we greet Jesus and all the angels and all our brothers and sisters in Christ who have previously passed on. Let's turn to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 13 to 18 and read what Paul has to say about this day. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul starts out in that particular passage of Scripture talking or reaffirming what he spoke of in 1 Corinthians 15 considering Christ's death, burial, and resurrection when he defied those who claimed there was no resurrection. Then he goes on to speak of the hope that we have and we share with those who have gone on before us in death. Christ did indeed raise us to life, guaranteeing our hope of inclusion in all the blessings of that resurrection and life in him. He encouraged his listeners to not grieve the passing on of those who had gone on before the rest of mankind, who have, like the rest of mankind who had no such hope. Well, we do grieve, but the hurt is not so much because of their passing on, because we know those who have passed on in Him have gone on to a place we all desire to go. They are now where there is no more death, no more pain, no more tears, no more mourning, no more sickness. But we grieve for that hole by that, because of that hole that they leave in our lives. We miss their smiles, their voices, their hugs. We miss them, but we can rejoice for them and with them that their spirits did not remain in the ground, but in an instant passed from the body to being with the Lord. They have joined in the rejoicing and praising of the Lord, and perhaps, as some old country gospel songs proclaim, 
They are playing in the angels' band and singing in their choir. There, the hope and anticipation we possess is that we too will realize that same blessing in the Lord's timing. Yes, we will be with Christ. Christ did arise, and so we will be blessed participants of that second resurrection. We will have our new bodies given to us, having been conformed to the image of the Son, and on this day we certainly will be fully persuaded that we have been kept by the power of God to the salvation being revealed on that very day. Now to the next section of 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9. This will be our text, and I've titled this morning's message, Reasons to Say So. The reasons for that title will be made known a little farther along in the message. As we have seen, though, the previous five verses of 1 Peter 1 has given us so much hope by reminding us of our election and our standing before God and our risen Savior. Peter continues on the same theme as we look at verses 6 through 9. Let's do a quick read of verses 6 through 9, then we will get into it and see how Peter is not yet finished with giving us reasons to praise God for all his many blessings to us. He, in fact, is just getting started. So reading along in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Sounds like we are on the same track as the previous five verses. We serve a risen Savior. I like to look at five ways I see that Peter lays out for us in this section of Scripture as to why we have such an inexpressible and glorious joy. According to the text, they look like this. One, we have a salvation that is secure. Two, a faith that is proven. Three, a commendation that is inevitable. And then a love is, uh, that is unseen. And then number five, the deliverance of our souls. We start in verse six. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter refers back to what we have discussed in verses 1 to 5. He says, In all this you greatly rejoice. We gave this a pretty good look in the first five verses, culminating with verse 5 where it says, We have a salvation that is protected by, by the power of God. This is where the first reason to rejoice has its foundation in the words, A salvation that is secure. This is why they are rejoicing. Rejoicing is more than a momentary happiness, a chuckle, and a grin. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Rejoicing is a deep, profound happiness rooted in something 
that you have great confidence in. We are overwhelmed with joy. God loves us with an everlasting love. We rejoice because we know our Savior died for us and will present us to the Father as his spotless, sinless bride. We rejoice as they rejoiced because our salvation is secure. Contrast that to those who sit under the false gospel which teaches there is no such thing as a secure salvation because their salvation is not a result of being chosen by God. Rather, it's of their own making because they are doing the choosing. There is no such thing as the perseverance of God. It's, it's perseverance by their own works. Christ doesn't do it all. No, he needs their help. They're choosing to allow him into their stony hearts, and they will decide whether salvation is for them, which, when looked at long enough and hard enough, it soon becomes apparent that if you have saved yourself, you have a salvation that is fragile and is not sustainable. It is not real. You have to keep up with all those good works or you will actually lose your self-obtained salvation. Fear and doubt rule. Any rejoicing is short-lived and pretty much made up. So just ask yourself this. If it is true that it's up to you to maintain your salvation, could you do it? I know my answer is a resounding no. But as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, we have one who keeps that salvation for us. Then two, a faith that is proven. Verses 6 and 7 bring this to mind. They say, In this you great, greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. We will pick up on the rest of verse 7 in just a bit. Peter is now speaking about how trials, tribulations, temptations at times can have a not-so-positive effect on our lives. We all can relate to that. Peter does not address exactly what the various trials at the time were, but we know that Christians under the rule of Rome were facing many different kinds of persecutions. We live in a country where that is not usually the case, even though at times there are plenty of indications that indicate the times they are a-changing. Right now, we are relatively persecution-free here, but that does not mean we don't have our own trials to deal with. Family issues rise up, health issues, loss of jobs, finances, and yes, even times of persecution, minor as they may be. There are many things that can give us a sense of being tested it's how we deal with them, though, that becomes the real test for us. Our text says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer in all kinds of trials, meaning these tests or trials are temporary things. 
So, do we dwell on them, or do we think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What we have here on this earth, good or bad, are all temporary. These tests and trials, they're all temporary. And so spiritually, our time is much better spent fixing our eyes on that which is permanent our relationship with the Savior and all His blessings, for they are eternal. Another thing that is important about these various trials is they are purposed by God for our own spiritual growth. In James, we are told that we should consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. James, just another apostle, encouraging us to consider our facing of various diverse trials with joy. James says, consider it pure joy. Peter says, in all this you greatly rejoice when you suffer grief through various trials. Paul has said back in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Now, some might ask, what is wrong with these people? But we know what's right about what they are saying. Peter, Paul, and James explain themselves very well. Again, in James 1, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Peter says in our text verse, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Or as the earlier readings said, proven the genuineness of your faith. And then Paul, Paul goes on to say, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So, as we see, trials test our faith at times. But as God, the finisher of our faith, and the spirit that lives in us, walk with us through the fires of these tests, our faith is refined. We grow in his grace. Our perseverance, our trust, our strength, all continue to grow in Christ. The faith of Christ that we possess, it is complete. But the weaknesses of our flesh at many times can test that faith. Never diminish it, but test it. We had a pastor at one of our summer camps preach a message out of the final passage in the last chapter of Job. He titled it simply, So, we know the story of how Job was tested severely, in the end losing everything he had except the faith in his Redeemer, a faith that is always enduring. He had professed earlier that he knew his Redeemer lived, and he was confident that even though his body had been destroyed by worms, he would see his Redeemer with his own eyes. Such was the faith of Job. Well, the book goes on to conclude with the report that Job, after passing through the fires of his many trials, was blessed by the Lord in the latter part of his life more than before in his former life. 
he had more land. He had more livestock of all kinds. He was richly blessed with seven sons and three daughters, three beautiful daughters that were considered the most beautiful in all the land. At his past passing, he left them all a grand inheritance, a beautiful picture of Christ and his church. So when comparing all Job was put through to all he gained, it's easy to conclude, so? It's not at all about the material things he gained. Those are really pictures of all the spiritual blessings the church has in Christ. But as we think of all our blessings and then think of our trials, we have trials, tribulations, so those are for our perseverance, our growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, giving us greater confidence in all that God does for us. Tests, so we have Christ and all he possesses, our salvation, our wisdom, our righteousness, our hope, our peace, our inheritance. He is our strength, so we can face all things. To all those negative things, we just say so. In Him, we have a faith that is proven. And then we go on to number three, a commendation that is inevitable. In verse 7, Peter says there at the end, may be that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We sing praises, we give glory and honor to the triune God. We do it faithfully as we should. But do we expect the Lord, God our Savior, to give us praise, honor, and glory in return? Well, that is what our text says. At the revelation of Christ, while we are standing before Him, dressed in our robes of righteousness, His robe of righteousness, in absolute awe, humbled and overwhelmed at the sight of His glorious presence, we will hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Words of praise for all his elect. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring light to what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart at that time. Each will receive, at that time, each will receive their praise from God. God knows the hearts and motives of man, and those found perfect in Christ will each receive their praise. Yes, as we stand there face to face with Him, He will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. While preparing for this study, I was perusing the internet. And I came across this poem. It's untitled and no author is credited, but what I would like to, I would like to share it with you because of its relevance and value to this part of our study. Oh the bliss of heaven's light, the scene of his dear face. Our soul cannot conceive that sight, nor song our joy relay. Yet stand we will by grace alone, blameless with great joy. Though undeserved his mercy shown, all praise our tongue employ. But that but nay, that day when we will shout the glories of his name, our Savior will turn about and praise us just the same. 
that is pretty much exactly what Peter is telling us here. We have a commendation that is inevitable. And then we go on to step or reason number four, a love unseen. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We have a love that is unseen, but it is not unknown. We spoke earlier about a faith that is proven. We have not seen him, but we love him. That is the faith of Christ, that gift from God, that gives us our assurance. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The King James Version uses the words evidence of. Other versions use words like conviction of, proof of, certainty of, or assurance of. It matters not what the translation, which translation used. They are all saying that they proclaim that we have something that is rock solid. The assurance of things not seen. The certainty of things not seen. The proof of things not seen, they are all rock solid. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, We walk by faith, not by sight. The faith we walk by, once again, is God-given conviction, assurance, belief in or of the evidence of things not seen. Well, we know that faith is not blind. Faith can see things that our eyes can never see. But that is the faith that God has given us, allowing us to truly see and understand the glory of God, the glory of Christ. By then, And then to realize how and why we came to love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. That knowledge alone should rock you back on your heels. We talked some last time about how understanding the good news can only happen after you come to an understanding of how bad the bad news is. That always takes me to Ezekiel 36, where God lays out in great detail all that He will do for Israel as He restores them to their land. He cleanses them of their sin and their impurities. He, <clears throat> he takes out that heart of stone, replaces it with that heart of flesh. All the things that we know are just pictures of what He does when He, through His Spirit, restores us. Ezekiel then goes on to tell us what God says happens next, and it is this, Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. He has revealed to you His Son that is in you. Now you see Him in all his glory. But now you need to come to grips with what is shown about you, all your evil, wicked, loathsome ways. And you know, you know that you are in need of a Savior. But then you ask, you just ask, how can it be that God would ever love me? Well, God speaks to us by his word. And by this word, he tells us repeatedly about that love for his precious saints. Precious in the eyes of the Lord are his saints. I have always liked this verse where God speak to, speaks to us through the prophet Jeremiah. 
Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. I mean, really, is that stunning or what? We just read how he has loved us with an everlasting love, but then we've also read about our wicked and evil ways. And he still, he draws us with loving kindness to himself. What a privileged people we are. I've heard people say that God cannot be a just God if he only saves some, but does not offer to everyone. Again, I say, really? The real question is, why does he save anyone at all? That would be a just God. Justice demands that we pay the wages for our sins. But we have a God full of genuine love for his elect. A God who is merciful to his elect and has purposed to redeem a people to himself not by merit, any merit of our own, because we have none, but for his namesake and for his glory. And knowing me, the sinner I am, I don't want a just God. I want a merciful God. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God's reply to that, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, does that give us reason for rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory? If that was the only verse I knew, it would be like the proverbial cherry on top of the best piece of rhubarb pie I've ever eaten. And some of you know how much I love a good rhubarb pie. I trust, though, each of you would be able to say yes that does give me reason for a joy unspeakable and full of glory. We truly do have a love unseen, but it's the love in which he first loved us, and we now are made able by his abundant grace to love him. And then on to reason number five for all of our joy unspeakable and full of glory is the deliverance of our souls. Verse 9 of our text, Obtaining the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You know, there is a point in each of our lives where something has changed us. We grew to know something was different. I grew up in a free will Baptist church. I made a profession of faith more than once. I raised my hand. I walked the aisle in front of hundreds of witnesses. I was baptized, told I was promised eternal life because I had surrendered myself to Jesus. Well, as the years went on and I completely left all that behind me. Then one day, I met an insurance salesman who after we spent a little time doing, taking care of some business, we soon became the best of friends. He began to talk to me about Christ but it was a different Christ than the one I grew up knowing. By the grace of God, he used this man, Stuart Knorr, who was pastor of this church at the time, to introduce me to the doctrines of grace. It took some time and many arguments about this new gospel I was hearing about, but by that same grace of God, I eventually came to realize I had been deceived for so many years. That false gospel, I was not saved at all. 
During that time, I also realized that something was changing in me. I was a different person. I believe that that was the time I started down the road to, under, to the understanding of this, obtaining the end of my faith, the salvation of my soul. Paul tells us in Romans 6, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you reap leads to holiness, and the outcome is eternal life. We are set free from sin at the new birth. By the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we grow in peace and knowledge and of our Lord and Savior. Some preachers teach that once saved, you begin this process wherein you become less and less sinful, more pleasing to God, even to a point of no longer having any sin. That is progressive sanctification, and it is a false gospel. Our sanctification is as complete at the instant of our quickening as it ever will be. We at our new birth are set apart in Christ. We are made holy right then, perfect in God's eyes because we are in the Son and He is in us. We do, however, gain perseverance as we grow in wisdom, we grow in confidence, and our faith becomes stronger and more steadfast as we are tested again and again, proving at the end that our faith does not perish even like such a thing as pure, refined gold will. No, our faith grows stronger and never perishes. We owe the deliverance of our souls to the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is He who will bring us to that end of our faith, that goal, the salvation of our souls. That deliverance of our souls, it is finished. And that brings us to the conclusion of, that, of this particular study, but just a couple quick points to wrap it up. We certainly have never suffered the trials of the early Christians and others throughout history, and even at this time, in so many places around the world. Think of Job, who went through what must be considered one of the most ultimate tests of all time. How many of us could go through what he did? But like Job, by the grace of God, we could. Also, just like Job, we are blessed by the countless abundant mercies and grace of our Lord. When Paul was suffering one of his many trials, that thorn in his flesh, and after he asked God three times to relieve him of this burden, God answered Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee. In God, our weaknesses are a source of strength because we have that sufficient grace in Him. And that grace will always get us through whatever life throws at us. And Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. When we are in the midst of trials, may we remember those words as we compare our trials to our countless blessings knowing the end of our faith is the salvation of our souls. What are trials and temptations compared to that? Sure, they can make you weary, tired, anxious, but Jesus also said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May we, when facing trials, and then made mindful 
of all the abundant blessings and peace of God that we each have in Christ, may we all just say so. Soon I will be with my Savior in glory. Thank you.